Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 64. Because naturally, uh, commercial parties, if they come up against a law which doesn't facilitate what they want to do, they and their legal advisors will find a way around it. And there are all sorts of legitimate ways of getting around this blocker in regards to possession. My name is Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. If sustainability and blockchain aren't the biggest buzzwords in trade finance right now, it's M-Letter, the model law on electronic transferable records. Some say Melita, some say M-Letter, some say MLETR. I'll save this for our expert later on. But today we're discussing the realities of implementing the United Nations model law on electronic transferable records into local markets, an incredibly important advancement in accepting electronic signatures. Believe it or not, for every cargo shipment moving from point A to point B, there's probably a plane rushing to get there first to deliver the paper documents with wetting signatures to allow for the transfer of ownership of goods. But to adopt paper documents electronically, we need to be able to interoperate with different entities. And to do this, we need a common language, a set of global trade standards. There are workarounds and we've seen incredible amounts of progress thanks to the Digital Negotiable Instruments Act and a lot of the work of the English Law Commission. With that in mind, I'm delighted to be joined today by Sarah Green, a law commissioner at the English Law Commission. Sarah, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Hi, Deepesh. Thanks for inviting me. Sarah, a quick introduction. Who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? I am Sarah Green, and I am the Law Commissioner for Commercial and Common Law at the Law Commission of England and Wales. And essentially, what we do at the Law Commission is ensure that the law is modern, accessible, and basically fit for purpose. Thank you very much. And let's just get this out of the way to start off with. What's the correct pronunciation? Of Emily TR. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm not sure there is a correct one, really. Um, it tends you've already given the three options that are that are used quite widely. My default use tends to be MLETR, but I don't think that was a conscious decision. That just seems to have worked its way into my mind somehow. So I'll probably be using that, but I really don't think there's an incorrect way of referring to it. Sounds good. Can you give us an overview of the work of the English Law Commission and what it does with respect to trade? And and I guess alluding to your point earlier, there are lots of challenges given that we operate in what is a 3,000-year-old industry which once relied on IOUs written on Mesopotamian clay tablets. What does a typical day look like for you? You make a very good point. The Law Commission, as I said, is concerned with making sure that the law is kept up to date. And of course, it's always going to be slightly behind the times because society changes and commerce changes. And then we realise the law needs to change. And in this area of commerce, 
we have rules that have formed over hundreds of years, and most of them, amazingly, still work brilliantly well. But of course, since we've had, in the very recent past, really, since we've had technology that enables us for the first time to do in electronic form what we used to do with paper and, and still, in fact, do do with paper to a large extent, that has meant that there are certain parts of that body of rules and that body of law that are no longer fit for purpose in the sense that they don't allow parties to do exactly the same thing with electronic documents that they can do with paper documents. And this was something that had been on our radar at the Law Commission anyway. And then it was the need for a change was reinforced when we spoke to stakeholders. So people who work in the industry, people who use these documents every day and their legal advisors made it very clear to us that there needed to be a change. And this is also something that jurisdictions across the world are dealing with and are grappling with very similar issues. It's worth making the point that just because I've seen it referred to in, in other ways in certain reports and articles, that the Law Commission is an independent body. So we make proposals to government, but we formulate those proposals in an independent way. We do so in a very consultative way. So speaking to people who are actually going to use these laws and that's what we've done. We've listened to those people. We have really been persuaded. And in this case, there wasn't actually that much persuasion necessary, but we're certainly now that this law needs to change in order to facilitate modern and contemporary commercial practice with electronic trade documents. That's a really good overview of that independent process. I think also it's become clear that the pandemic has deeply impacted the way in which trade is conducted. I mean, right now there's an estimated 4 billion paper documents lodged in the trade system. We've got a two to four trillion US dollar trade finance gap. How has the pandemic impacted the acceptance of trade documents from a legal perspective, particularly given the restrictions we've had on the physical movement of goods and people? It's a really good point. And it's been something over the last 18 months of a perfect storm, really. So obviously, it goes without saying that this pandemic has been absolutely awful in, in any number of ways. I suppose we're now maybe at the stage where it's worth looking for some forms of silver lining just to we'll never balance out all of the chaos that it has wrought. But I think in this particular instance, what it has done is taken issues, which, as I said, were on the Law Commission's radar anyway. Practice had started to change with technology that enables things to be done remotely. You know, people had started to do that in smaller ways. So we have this technology, we had the development of this technology, and then along came the pandemic. And so push these issues to the fore, really, because there were all sorts of situations where it might never have been particularly efficient to transport paper documents across the globe. For lots of people, certainly to current students of law, for example, the idea that when you transport goods across the globe, you also have to get this particular paper document to the same destination. That would just seem probably quite crazy to them. And yet that is really still what the law of England and Wales expects. So I think the pandemic, if we are going to take anything good from it, is that it has forced the issue on this. So it was very important anyway. Stakeholders and people in the industry had told us that this was the way that practice was going. And therefore, this is the way that law should also go. And then the pandemic made that even more urgent and even more obvious that the law needs to accommodate these practices, which are only going to get more and more common. 
Thanks very much for that overview. And I guess, yes, it's become very clear that there currently isn't that acceptance of an electronic signature under English law. I think one of the main issues often raised in relation to digitizing trade is rules and regulations, or rather how every country and institution appears to have their own set of rules. Is the industry in need of globally accepted regulations such as the adoption of the model law? There's two things from that, really. I should probably make it clear that the problem with accepting electronic documentation in English law is not about electronic signatures as such. The Law Commission a few years ago published a statement. We don't always do proposals for government. We can do draft bills, we can do draft legislation. But sometimes what we're asked to do is simply give a statement of the law as it is. So those rules and regulations that you referred to might be quite disparate and they might be quite hard to access. And so sometimes what we do is produce a digest of those rules and laws to make them more accessible. We did this a few years ago in relation to electronic signatures. And actually, in most situations, not all, there are some pockets of documentation which still need a formality in terms of signature. But actually, in general, there is nothing in English law which prevents an electronic signature from being a valid one. And so from evidencing what is necessary for a document to have legal functionality. The real problem in English law, and then the problem that you referred to, which is global really, is about possession. The problem with electronic documentation is they are regarded by English law, or it is, I should say, regarded by English law as being intangible. And the problematic rule, which our proposals at the Law Commission are trying to remove, is that an intangible can't be possessed. And if you can't possess it, there are all sorts of implications that flow from that. It comes from the double spend problem at root. So if I have a document that's in paper form and I give it to you, I no longer have it. And so you can prove that you are the holder of that document and you therefore have all the rights that are embodied in that document. And I don't. And until quite recently, we couldn't replicate that in electronic form. And that was the real issue. Technology has now meant that we can actually replicate that in electronic form. And so the legal changes that we are proposing are about saying, well, look, in certain situations, you can possess an electronic document in the same way as you can a paper document, even though it might be intangible. So we're decoupling the question of tangible, intangible from the question of possessable, non-possessable. And that's the issue that is facing all these jurisdictions. And you're absolutely right to say that one of the real problems with that is in one sense, you might think, well, this is a global issue and it's definitely a global issue. Therefore, we should have a global solution. And we should just say, right, everyone in the world who wants to engage in this transnational commercial practice should just implement the following rules, X, Y, Z, and it's all done and dusted. And it's not as easy as that, of course, because every jurisdiction has its own peculiarities and has its own existing rules and regulations and different changes need to be made in each one. Now, the MLETR is a fantastic overarching guide for that, but it was as any model law is, bearing in mind everything I've just said about the differences across jurisdictions, any model law is not intended to be a plug and play device. So it is more of a question of it provides these ideas, these concepts, these suggested solutions, which jurisdictions can then implement in their own way. Now, what the Law Commission of England and Wales is doing is, I mean, we've been very cognizant of the MLETR as we formulated our own proposals, and we pretty much in substance arrive at the same result. I mean, that's all anybody's 
really interested in is can we use these documents in electronic form? So that's what we've done, but we've had to do it in a slightly different way. So without going into a huge amount of detail, one of the biggest differences linguistic maybe in that the model law talks about control and uses control of these intangible electronic documents as a functional equivalent of possession. What we're doing in English law, English law has a particular fascination with the concept of possession. I'm sure everybody's heard that the term possession is nine tenths of the law, and I would say it's probably even more than that, actually. So what we've done in our proposals is extend the notion of possession so that under the right circumstances, it can apply to intangibles as well as to tangibles. So just to clarify, the changes under English law are largely around the extension of possession so that they can include intangible things like documents, right? Exactly. I mean, I think this is something that has fascinated me for years. It's been the case, of course, until really very recently that everything we wanted to possess was tangible. So this question just never arose. When we were talking about bags of gold or we were talking about horses, even when we were talking about laptops, you know, the hardware that we all want to possess because we want to have our rights in it recognised. That's what it all comes down to. Can I have my rights? And so it's only very, very recently, certainly in English law terms, very recently, there's been any question of wanting to possess something that is intangible Because, of course, if we think about genuine intangibles like ideas or information, pure information, you know, if I tell you a secret, then clearly one can't possess that because once I tell you, it's still in my brain. I can't divest myself of that secret. But the thing about digital assets, and this is what I think is really fascinating, they're largely regarded as intangible. I'm not quite sure I agree with that as a classification, but more importantly, I don't think it matters. Because I think what's happened is that over hundreds and hundreds of years, we've just presumed in order to be possessable, something has to be tangible, because it always has been. It's just been a sort of natural correlation between possessibility and tangibility. But I don't think that dichotomy works anymore. I don't actually think that something that is electronic and so may well be regarded as intangible is not necessarily something which can't be possessed. There are all sorts of ways in which you can make a digital thing possessable in the same way that you can a tangible thing like a watch or a piece of paper or a pen. How can a quote-unquote intangible item like an electronic document be possessable to avoid that double spend issue? How can technology actually help prove that only I, Depeche Patel, own the latest version of this electronic document rather than yourself, Sarah? That's a really good question. And that goes to the heart of the proposals in our consultation paper. And this was one of the most enjoyable, but also very difficult and probably most difficult elements of the proposals that we came up with. So as I said, what we're trying to do is decouple tangibility and tangibility from possessibility, non-possessibility. So what we did is we looked at all the features of something that's tangible and said, so what is it about this tangibility, this thing? that is tangible, that makes it possessable? And when can a digital thing exhibit those same characteristics? So we contrasted sort of pure intangible that you can't possess. So I said to you, like pure information, like a secret. What is really factually so different about that to say, well, I might as well use an electronic trade document, right? Because that's what we're talking about. So that's the best example to use. So what's the factual difference between those two? And we came up with three characteristics 
And the approach of our proposals is not to provide an exhaustive list of the following things can be possessed and the following things can't. What we decided to do is to say, well, where something exhibits following characteristics, it can be subject to possession. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be an electronic trade document. And we're also doing a project that are making this broader and thinking about the same approach to, say, NFTs, non-fungible tokens or virtual currencies. So this was our way in. And those characteristics are, first that something must have an independent existence in the world. And what I mean by that is that it exists whether people exist or not, or whether people lay claim to it, and whether a legal system exists or not. So if you have a purely legal right, like a debt, so say I owe you, Deepesh, £500, now that thing, that right that you have against me, only exists because you and I exist and because there's a legal system that recognises it. It doesn't have its own independent existence in the world. Whereas something that is a digital thing, so take an electronic trade document or an NFT, whether or not you and I exist, whether or not we lay claim to that thing, it will still be there. And it will still be there if the legal system disappears tomorrow. And I think that's the first thing that makes something possessable or non-possessable because, and that feeds into the next two. So I'll come back to that. The other criteria are that something is subject to exclusive possession. And I've already touched on that. So I can take it, I can give it to you. And I know that you then are the person who can decide what happens with that thing. You can exclude other people. You can use it. You can transfer it to someone else. You could even destroy it. And then the final thing is divestibility. And, and it, there's a lot of overlap there. So divestibility is I give it to you. You gain that exclusive control and I lose it. That's the important thing because that's what gets around the double spend problem. So if and when technologies can achieve that and make a digital thing subject to all those characteristics, then we have possession and intangibility is actually irrelevant. Now, there are still going to be digital assets which don't fulfill that criteria and that is fine. We are in no way suggesting that everything that is intangible should be possessable. As I said, we're just trying to break that link, that necessary link that exists at the moment between possessability and tangibility. I guess without putting words in your mouth and being the DLT blockchain enthusiast that I am, I guess a lot of the features of things like the distributed ledger technology could actually fall within and I guess tick those three criteria, right? Absolutely. Distributed ledger technology has been the thing which has really made this not only possible, because I suspect that was probably possible before, but certainly possible on a wide scale and accessible to many. And it might not be the thing and the only thing which carries it forward into the future. And we're quite conscious in our proposals that we want to remain technology neutral. So we make no direct reference to it. But there is no getting away from the fact that the distributed ledger technology that we are now all increasingly familiar with is the thing that has made these characteristics realizable in relation to digitized assets. So what's the roadmap and process to allow for the possession of those intangible electronic documents under English law? And which trade documents would be covered? So what we are doing now, we've got a consultation paper out and the consultation is open until the end of this month. So I was just trying to remember what date it was then, hence my slight pause. So there's only, was it nine days left for people to respond? As I said at the start, we are a highly consultative body. Our consultations are genuine consultations. So we make our provisional proposals and we are very, very much interested in what people think of them, particularly if people are going to be critical of them, if they 
don't think they will work. We absolutely want to hear from those people. So that closes at the end of July. So if there's anyone listening who, who has an interest in this, please feel free to go onto the Law Commission website. In fact, if you put Law Commission electronic aid documents into any search, there are lots of questions. Certainly don't have to answer them all. You can pick a views, you can pick on your favourite bits and tell us what you think. That's the first part of the process. Then we spend three months analysing those responses. So as I said, genuine consultation. And it might be that we change our provisional proposals. It might be that those characteristics that I've just outlined to you, Deepesh, are not the ones that maybe people think we should be using. And then we produce a report. We also have in-house parliamentary counsel, which means that we can draft our own legislation. So we will produce the report and draft legislation towards the end of this year. We then present to government. As as the Law Commission, that's the most we can do. We make proposals, we submit it to government, the ball is then in government's court. So we have no guarantee that these things are going to be carried into law, although we do have a very high success rate in that. And also, this is one of those projects which is not particularly controversial. We do have some in the Commission, which you know, some people think are a very good idea and some people think are a really bad idea. And actually, in this space, everybody seems to think this is a really good idea. So we're not really facing an uphill struggle in terms of enthusiasm for these changes. Now, that's in no way saying that I can guarantee they will get passed. I can't. But we certainly don't even take on a project unless government has a serious intention, at least to consider it. So that's the time frame for it. And I'm afraid I spent so long answering that part of your question, I can't remember the second part. No, no, that's okay. What trade documents would be covered? Okay, so this is another thing, and I can never remember them off the top of my head, but there is um, a draft clause in the bill which sets out a, what is at the moment, an exhaustive list of trade documents. So things like bills of lading, I mean, that's the obvious one that is on there, and way bills and certain receipts and insurance documents. Now, at the moment, as I said, that's set out as an exhaustive list. So in order to be a trade document for the purposes of the proposals, a document has to be held on a system that enables only one person or only one party to have control of that document at any particular time. And it also has to be a document of the type that is on that list. And that's one of the things that we would very much like responses on, whether we should stick with this definitive list, which pulls out those trade documents to which possession is highly significant, or whether we should take an approach which is more open textured and simply say maybe trade documents or documents which are in an intangible form. So the answer to your question is, there is a list in the draft bill. It is those things to which possession is very important. Well, nothing set in stone, but that is something that we are particularly keen to hear views on because it's something that as a team we've gone backwards and forwards on. Should we be exhaustive or should we just give indications? It'd be good to know. Absolutely. And just going back to your point here, I think on your website, the documents you've identified are bills of lading, bills of exchange, prom notes, ships delivery orders, warehouse receipts, marine insurance policies, cargo insurance certificates and warehouse receipts. So hugely relevant in all areas of freight forwarding there. It seems like there is a workaround 
at the moment, though, for the electronic payment undertaking, allowing it to comply with the current English law. Can you talk about this? So there are all sorts of workarounds. This is what we see in the commercial and common law team all the time, because naturally, uh, commercial parties, if they come up against a law which doesn't facilitate what they want to do, they and their legal advisors will find a way around it. And there are all sorts of legitimate ways of getting around this blocker in regards to possession. And to some extent, they achieve the same outcomes. And in most situations, or rather, I should say in a lot of situations, parties won't really notice the difference. Because what possession gives you is it gives you a title. If we're talking about, say, a bill of lading and you possess that bill of lading, you have title to the goods to which it relates. And that is protected as a matter of property in English law. What you can do in these situations, and you rightly refer to to, there are several different workarounds actually that commercial parties do. And of course, what they can agree is they can agree that between themselves as a matter of contract that a particular document is going to have a particular effect. Now, again, in a lot of situations, most parties will not notice the difference between those two things. But sometimes things happen, which means that that difference is, is very noticeable. And the really big difference between a contractual right, which is what you get as a virtue of most of the workarounds and a proprietary right, which you would get under our proposals, you know, if, if something's possessable, is protected as a matter of property, is that in situations of insolvency, you are far more protected because you are a secured creditor if you have a proprietary right. If you have a contractual right, you are not. The workarounds are fine and they are a natural result of commercial parties' ingenuity and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them in as far as they go. But there is a question and there's long been a question in my mind is that why should we need these workarounds which give you less satisfactory and comprehensive protection in the great scheme of things. And when you consider, as most people do, that an electronic document is to all intents and purposes exactly the same, particularly in terms of functionality as a paper document. And we have DLT, which allows us to make it possessable. Why would the law not do this and give maximum protection? Thank you very much, Sarah. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I know G7 have recently released a framework for G7 collaboration on electronic transferable documents, providing a long overdue pathway to digitize trade documentation in a way that should reduce some of the costs and frictions for small businesses in particular seeking to export to new markets. So I think there's a lot of hope here and, and I really commend the work of the English Law Commission. I think the key take-homes from this podcast is to really review that consultation paper before the end of July and we'll be posting a URL to this on the podcast article. With that in mind, I'm afraid we're going to have to come to a close. But Sarah, thank you very much for your time and good to discuss the future of the acceptance of electronic documents. And I think the key here really is around possession of those intangible documents. Thanks for your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.